Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football. Hello and welcome to the Football Code Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Manby, and on this show I welcome Mark Lowens, Creative Director at Orlando City SC and Orlando Pride and co-founder of Fly Nowhere. Both professionally and personally, Mark has been at the centre of soccer culture in the US and is expertly placed to talk to us about how it all started and where it's going. Given the breadth of things he's done and the projects he's been involved in, it's maybe difficult to pin down exactly how to describe Mark, but perhaps the best way would be as an American football culture connoisseur. But let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Mark, welcome to the show. And would you consider that description fair? Um, I think it is uh, it's a pretty lofty uh, title to live up to, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. Thanks. Well, no pressure. Um, and give us some perspective then. If we if we go back, I don't know, 20 years, what was it like following football in the US uh, at the turn of the century in New York, especially with your background in music? Well, I think I would go back even further than that because I think that there's like part of my like persona and development as like a football fan in America developed early on because it just wasn't available. It wasn't easy to to follow matches and to to understand the sport. Um so for me, you know, when I was a child like in the in the mid 80s and in the 90s, um you know, we didn't have, you know, the the premiership deals like we do today. So watching football on television like wasn't really an option at all. I recall kind of clicking around the channels and you know, looking for Telemundo or Rai the the Spanish or the Italian networks to follow games and, you know, really just kind of clicking through. I had no guide or, you know, I didn't learn football from my my family or my father. It wasn't passed down. Um, it was something I discovered. And so I had to kind of discover everything. Uh, so watching on Saturday or Sunday mornings, like I didn't know who the teams were. I couldn't speak the languages that the games were being broadcast in. Uh, so it was literally quite foreign and like really fascinating and exciting. And, you know, I had to use my imagination to like understand what football was in the rest of the world because it it didn't exist here. How did you pick your favorite teams? Was it about players and how they played and the style of their football? Or was it like, I like his shirt. He's got a cool haircut. I wish that I was like, you know, understanding of the game at that point in my life where I could be like, Oh man, uh, Bereze is just such a beautiful defender that that's who I'm following. But it was really like, oh cool, this game is on. I'm gonna watch the red and black stripes play the blue and black stripes. And you know, I think I, I mentioned this uh, before. Is you know, at at that period in my life, I didn't understand that like teams had shirt sponsors, and so I would be like, oh, Mota is playing. Parmalat or Barilla is playing, you know, whomever. And Nintendo. because those brands are, are foreign brands and not stuff that I was seeing in the grocery store or or in my house, I thought that they were the, the teams. And what was it about football that then appealed to you? Because, you know, this is, as you say, before it hits the mainstream and before the players are known and before the, you know, World Cup and everything else gets uh, massive interest. And Americans traditionally, I think, would say, well, it's a low-scoring game that can end in a draw, and that's not that's anathema to our sporting culture and how we understand it. So what was it that grabbed you? I think, you know, as a kid, I didn't know anything about the sport or, 
you know, the heights to which its popularity would rise around the world. And so for me, I just had fun playing, you know, I didn't know any better. I was enthralled with just kicking a ball around. Um, and from there, I just wanted to discover more. And so watching those matches on, on Telemundo or on Rye on, on weekend mornings, and you can see the passion of, of the fandoms in these foreign places and the stadiums look different and the fans look different and it's not the NFL and it's not, you know, hot dogs and, and beer at the ballpark. It's, it's TIFOs, it's flares, it's flags, it's, you know, unified singing, you know, and, and, and I don't understand any of it, but it's just beautiful and passionate and it's, it's really kind of enthralling. And, and I was just so curious just to learn more, but it was, it was so hard, you know, this is kind of pre-internet, pre, you know, football broadcast rights in America. It was, you know, kind of uh, essentially digging and, and trying to find more about this thing that was, that I was so curious about. You would later, of course, go on to make a career out of merging football and other cultural elements, be it fashion or music. How and when did these things start to merge? How and when did this passion, even for this curiosity of football, start to feel synonymous or at least compatible with these other cultural interests you have? Well, I, th I think there's kind of like two things kind of converging in my life. I played and was competitive. You know, I'm sure like very many people that you talk to, um, their first goal was to, to be a player in this world that we are fans of. And I played uh, through, through college here in America, which is quite a high level. It's not the same kind of system uh, as it is around the world. Um, and so after that, I kind of needed to make a choice, uh, you know, like a career choice. And I, and I didn't think that football would be the case for me. Um, so I kind of dove into other things that I was passionate about and that, you know, for the most part is, is art, music, food, uh, football. Those are kind of like the, the cornerstones of my things I'm passionate about. And, um, you know, simultaneously entering the workforce and, you know, trying to, to find a career in other things that I was interested in. So I, so I ended up, you know, early doors getting a job in Manhattan in the kind of uh, urban culture magazine landscape that was really, really popular in the early 2000s. I worked at a place called Frank 151 that was, you know, kind of competitors with Vice Magazine, Fader Magazine, Complex Magazine. So there were these kind of conglomerate groups of interesting people telling stories about, about music, art, you know, alternative sports like skateboarding or BMX biking, uh, graffiti art. And at the same time, there was this kind of influx of, you know, experiential marketing and authenticity and, and big brands putting money behind kind of authentic music tours or fashion spreads or any kind of like real marketing rather than kind of more commercial marketing. And so like in this place and in that kind of time, I think the world had already started learning from the NBA really. In the 80s and 90s, the NBA was like the epicenter of sport and culture and kind of like the mixing of, of hip hop, sneaker culture and sport. And so I think at that time, people were like, hmm, maybe this is the playbook, right? 
And I think that was like kind of fledglings of ideas that like soccer is this, but on global steroids, you know, for the most part, and and I don't mean to generalize, but hip hop and NBA and that kind of culture in the nineties was, you know, born in, in New York or LA or Atlanta and they had their regional differences, but it was all American. I think the interesting thing is when you zoom out, the scope of football is that you have that kind of urban culture, fashion, music in the epicenters of the rest of the world and they're unique. You know, there's certain things or, or threads that are common that run throughout that you can pull through, but Paris and London and uh, Amsterdam and Morocco and Rio or Buenos Aires all have those pieces of culture, but they're all different and unique to those places. So think about multiplying that like cultural crossover that you see in the NBA times millions of people all around the world. And that I think is kind of the thing that started clicking for me. I was going to ask about that geographic individuality and not necessarily on a global scale, but more within the US. It's a huge country and it does feel like culturally what goes in Atlanta doesn't necessarily go in Austin. And did you feel that that was a core part of what you were doing? US cities are so proud of their individuality, aren't they? And did it differ across the country? Was New York the best place to be? Uh, You know, I spent almost 15 years of my life living in New York and kind of like aspiring to live in New York. When I was a kid, I grew up uh, in New Jersey, just 30 minutes outside. So if I had to answer that question, I would say New York is the best. And, but I mean, and I could, know could, that, could, it have, could you have done it anywhere else? If you'd been in Los Angeles or Orlando or anywhere else, could you have done what you were doing during that time? I don't think so. I think that the you need the melting pot and the the variety of people, passions, interests, and the kind of convergence of the rest of the world all into like that tiny island of of Manhattan and the outer boroughs for those kind of things to blossom. And I think people have talked about that since, I mean, for, for a very long time, like certainly the 70s and early 80s, like New York City kind of changed the rest of the world from an art, music, and culture perspective. And I think to this day, you still see the remnants of those kind of like cultural shifts, like still kind of blossoming in New York. And that's what people go there for. Is there anything in particular you did that you're proud of while they're merging these worlds that you're talking about and managing to incorporate music into football or football into music, whichever way around it was? You know, I think it was really, really fun and exciting when a group of my buddies got together and we... You know, we were seeing people obviously play seven-a-side and small-sided football in in New York City in various places. And we kind of saw the the inklings in the early kind of start of this league called the Bowery Premier League, which is like, it's a men's league. Like, you know, old guys playing five-a-side or seven-a-side football in downtown New York. But it it started to develop its own kind of like little mini culture. And a group of my friends all kind of, from the creative industries uh, got together to make our own team. And like at the time, like typically teams would wear the t-shirt that the league gave you and they would make the same t-shirt in 20 different colors and hand them out to the different teams. 
But we were like, we have the chops to make our own kits. And so we're going to do it. Um, and the founder of Nowhere FC, Diego Moscoso, he was a designer for Supreme and for uh, LVMH. And so he had the the legitimate kind of design and manufacturing experience to like pull this off at a super high level for a bunch of guys who were playing five-a-side football. Um, so we started making, you know, hand-dyed, you know, fully manufactured kits with custom-made embellishments uh, from the likes of, of Avery Dennison and other kind of big manufacturing partners just because he knew how to do it. Um, and I think that, you know, we weren't the first ones to do it. You know, we certainly won't be the last, but I think we were part of kind of revolutionizing that industry. And I think now, uh, you know, I think Adidas stood up or Nike stood up and took notice and it kind of has tentacles that reach around the world where kids are doing that same sort of thing of designing their own kits, making an Instagram for their club team and um, telling the story of, of what their version of football is that I think we had, uh, you know, perhaps influenced others. I think that is really exciting to me and something that I'll be really proud of. Tell us a little bit about Nowhere FC, which you mentioned there and you were kind of talking about the formation of it. For those listeners who aren't aware of what Nowhere FC is or does, uh, can you give us the the elevator pitch? It's, uh, it's the world's biggest little football club. Um, and so we kind of had this mantra of, of from the low level to the pro level. Um, and so we can make garments and, and kits and gear uh, up there with the likes of, of Real Madrid, Barcelona, Adidas, Nike. Uh, while on the other hand, the reality of our club is that it's not really real. It right, you're not doesn't playing even exist a, anymore. A league structure, and you don't have the fixture list or the, the you know the league table on your website. No, no, but it has uh, you know kind of taken us around the world and doing really fun projects with with Nike, Adidas, MLS, uh, AS Roma, Inter Milan. You know, designing bags in Japan, making team suiting with rag and bones. So like those kind of projects are just are so so fun and so interesting because it, the reality is, is that we're, we weren't even a team. Did it surprise you how successful it became? You know, when you founded this and it was a kind of, you know, sounds like it was a New York back streets, you know, gravel track seven aside kind of, um, you know, stitch it together by hand sort of thing. You know, did you ever think, hey, this is, um, you know, this is a future career. This is commercially viable. We're going to work with the biggest names in football. Well, it's, I, I never thought it would be kind of a career path. I just, it was like my side hustle, you know, at the time I was, uh, I was running experiential department and like a trends and culture team for Viacom, which is the home of MTV, VH1, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon. Um, and so I had like a nine to five full-time job and, you know, I never kind of envisioned that that would be the, a stepping stone to get me into the professional soccer career that I have now. But I tell you, you know, after being away from football as a player to get back to it through these passion projects was super exciting. And I just kept wanting more and more. And, you know, essentially it was my my business card for which um, the International Champions Cup came calling. They said, hey, we love what you guys are doing at Nowhere FC. We have this tournament where we bring the biggest teams on the planet to America, to Asia. We do games in Europe. 
do you want to set up a creative team and do what you do here and work with Real Madrid and Manchester United and Barcelona and PSG? And I was like, uh, yes. We run a uh, content series on goal called Kit Collector. And the premise is very simple. We got a presenter and they talk to a famous name from the world of professional sport. Uh, professional football could be male, could be female. And essentially they walk around a store and they look at old iconic football shirts and the player might pick out some that are resonant or meaningful to him or her personally. Maybe it's the club they support or the first shirt they had, or maybe it's just an iconic shirt that they like the sound of. And the content is great. It's very simple. But what always amazes me is the engagement and the interactions and the passion that you see in the comments. And you see people screaming. They're burning with fury that this player prefers the Palmer 94 shirt to the Fiorentina 96. What is it about football kits that makes people so passionate? Because without wanting to be facetious, it's the same colors for you know the same teams with the same stripes year on year, no? Yeah. I think that like the kit represents the club in a way that's like it's it's you know, banner for war or it's flag. It's, it's what you put in the ground to, to stake your claim to something. But I think people have their own connection to those shirts for whatever reason. And it could be a myriad of things of who gave it to you, who played in that kit, what the team won wearing that kit, or you have memories attached to that shirt. And so it's bigger than just the design or how cool it may look. Um, and I think that, that, that those are objective as well. Like a lot of times kit design will end up both in the, the best kits of the year and the worst kits of the year. They're polarizing. And so, you know, there's a million answers for why one person prefers one kit over another, but that's the beauty of it. And the debate will never die. Um, and I think that's why we love it, right? I agree with that. Yeah. No, you're right. Before every start of the season or World Cup, those lists come out, top five kids, worst five kids. And you're right. As as often as not, the uh, the bolder ones, shall we say, you know, the more right. ambitious ones will appear in both of them. Yes. Uh, Mark, I know you're, big, you're obviously a, a big fan of kids, a big kid collector. What, what would be your top three all time? Oh, man. Um, that is really tough. I'm going to go with the personal version of this that probably isn't necessarily connected to the design of those shirts, but more the meaning of those shirts. So I'll set up each shirt with a little bit of a story. I think there is one kit that I have in my collection. It is a Bolivia U16 national team shirt um, that was given to me by a Bolivian guy who I played with. And I lived with his family for a summer. He was in the U16 national team. I was at that age at that time. And I spent an entire summer um, training with Tahuichi in Santa Cruz, Bolivia and, and living with his family. And it was just like probably one of the most uh, defining experiences of my life. Coming from America, going to a third world country training, just playing every single day. Even when we weren't training, we were playing together, betting neighborhood kids in five aside for $2 and, and, you know, playing around the clock for an entire summer in a foreign land was just a, a, an unbelievable experience. And, and that kid 
was special to 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 my friend Milton and he gave me that kit. So that one is really kind of a, a prized possession. And it was in like that's probably 90. Yeah, it was during Euro 96. So it was in 1996. So that really, really ripe era of like beautifully large format graphic Umbro kits. And it had a beautiful embroidered Bolivian national team badge. Uh, it's just really, really fantastic piece. Um, that's one. The second one, uh, I am a Manchester United supporter. My brother went on trial, on trial with Manchester United for a few months in in 99, right after they won the treble. And so, you know, I have memories of that treble winning team and, and that Umbro jersey. And while he was there, the club created a specific like treble crest. So it said treble winners embroidered around the Manchester United crest. And as they do at, at a lot of big clubs, they have like garment signing days where they'll lay out like a hundred shirts and all the players will go through and sign each one. And so my brother nicked one of those for me. So that is a, uh, a really kind of keepsake of, of my favorite club and my brother's time at that club. And um, it kind of like just cements that United fandom in our family. And the third one, I don't know. I have, um, hmm. You can have a think about it. Tell me at okay. the end of the uh, okay. podcast, maybe. Okay. Let's move on, Mark, from personal to professional. Um, and I want to get your take on this because we're seeing a lot of collaborations in the world of football right now, and perhaps with partners who you wouldn't traditionally expect to be in that world. You know, streetwear fashion brands, high-end fashion brands, the likes of Inter Milan and Montclair. Who do you think's done it best? What's really worked in these um, unusual or unexpected collaborations? You know, there's so many going on that are really interesting to me at really kind of the, the interesting thing that some of them are super high fashion brand, you know, globally known. And at other times they're kind of local purveyors of culture that get to partner with these giant football clubs. So I think that dichotomy is really interesting to me, but I, I think probably my, my favorite example is the Juventus Palace collaboration. I think it kind of changed the game a little bit. Like collaborations have been going on for quite a long time by the, t by the time that Palace Juventus thing came along. But I think that it was, what was interesting to me was that they partnered with a, you know, a skateboard brand that's, that's kind of irreverent, cheeky, clever, probably like not who you would anticipate, like the old lady with, you know, 125 years of history, um, steeped in, you know, trophy winning Scudetto championships and, and all this kind of like almost regal nature to that club. And then they're partnering with like a tongue in cheek skate brand from the UK, like seemed like so weird and wonderful. And uh, I think the design was, was strong. It was solid. It was unique because of the, the fluorescent colors and the gradients that they added into the, the traditional, you know, black and white stripes of Juventus. But as far as I can recall, that was perhaps the first time that that kind of weird collaboration got worn on the pitch by the players. A lot of times these collaborations could be merch or kind of supplementary garments, like whether they're a jacket or hoodies or kind of travel sweats. But this was like the kit and the players wore it. 
in competition, which I thought was amazing. I kind of think of those skate brands as being something that was part of my youth. And that's something that I notice both in football and in the world of fashion, that 90s culture, you know, I was, I was kind of, my youth was the 90s. And um, it feels to me like fashion and broader culture as well right now. Everybody's listening to the Spice Girls again. You know, it seems to borrow heavily from the 90s. Why do you think fashion brands are drawing on that 90s culture and indeed football so much? I mean, I think that that kind of thing, like fashion being inspired by a time period, I think is is cyclical. You know, it's the 90s right now. And in a couple of years, it's going to be the early 2000s and kind of rinse and repeat through time. Because I think people that come into creative positions of power or become designers, you know, they lean back on on what develop those creative sensibilities when they were in their their youth so everyone you know everyone's period of like let's say like 12 to like 18 years old is that formative period where you're like out on your own discovering music and it and it kind of it impacts your life in a way that you're you're tying like those I wore those sneakers at this event in my life or my friends and I listened to this song on repeat when we were going to this thing in our high school or, you know, so I think as you grow older, that nostalgia creeps back in and you're like, this is going to come back around and be cool again. And I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of designers have that in their DNA. And I think, you know, the most topical one probably for me is, is, is Virgil Abloh. I think he and I grew up in similar times and had a lot of similar references and to see him, you know, jog out some of our childhood heroes for Louis Vuitton and for Nike and for his own brand, um, you know, kind of subculture folks like Goldie or Futura, um, these kind of hip hop drum and bass DJ culture graffiti artists and, you know, pulling them up into the world of high fashion was kind of awesome. But I think the 90s specifically, I think, is really relevant right now as we're talking about this this intersection of, of football, sport, culture, music, art at large. I think, you know, the world of football and, you know, not to glorify violence or hooliganism, but I think that the terraces in the 80s or 90s drove a lot of fashion choices and I think those styles are coming back around and becoming trendy in this day and age. Um, there's, you know, blokecore is a thing. Blokecore yep. is huge. Blokecore is a 500 million hashtag views on TikTok thing. So, yeah. And I mean, you know, for you and I, that was just like what you wore the match on. You know, you wanted to have like a nice set of trainers, probably jeans, and a good jacket, right? Or track top or jumper or whatever. And so those kind of things are coming back around and, and trainers, you know, you, you're seeing it, the, the reemergence of the Samba. Like that shoe as a fashion item has been dead for 30 years. And now it's in every photo shoot. And it's a shoe that I wore to play like indoor football in. And now there's models traipsing around 
downtown Manhattan, London, Paris, wearing sambas. It's terrific. I love the, um, I love, I say, I get confused by uh, some, sometimes this sort of crossover of Gen Z sort of following, you know, millennial trends from, um, you know, back in our childhood. And sometimes it's chuggy, right? And that's bad. And then sometimes yes. it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's cool and it's to be repeated. And uh, it's a bit of a minefield out there, but I guess that's, um, you know, that's the, that's the path we're all treading. Mark, I wanted to talk about U.S. versus um, Europe and indeed the rest of the world. And this is uh, about football and about that intersectionality that you're talking about there. And I think sometimes in Europe, there's a kind of feeling that in the U.S., um, you know, football's a challenger sport, or at least it has been a challenger sport. And, um, you know, it's a young sport and maybe it should be copying what's happening over in Europe. And that's the path to success. But I've spoken to a couple of people on this podcast, um, one of them was Alexi Lalas, another was Darren Eels when he was at Atlanta United. And both of them said, you know what, number one, the US shouldn't be copying anyone because it's, you know, the US is a unique country and needs to do it its own way. And number two, hang on a minute, maybe Europe and the rest of the world should actually be copying some of the things that we're doing over here because we're, we've learned from XYZ or we're innovating in XYZ way, or maybe because we're a challenger brand and we have to kind of fight for it the whole time, you have to fight for attention. Um, actually, you know, you guys over there could learn a thing or two from us. Where do you stand on that um, side of the debate? It's a tough one. I think that, you know, I've seen and could argue for both sides. I think as a like football fan, the romantic side of that for me was discovering Europe. So I always kind of held, you know, the Premier League and the European leagues kind of on this pedestal because it was what I was chasing for so long. You know, like I didn't know anything and it just seemed so beautiful and so amazing. Um, and there was nothing like that here for me growing up. And so by the time I was a teenager, um, I was lucky enough to play in some tournaments in, in Europe and start traveling to Europe on a, on a regular basis. And so those pilgrimages for me were about discovery and experiencing what, what the, you know, the curva was like and that match day experience, like walking up to the stadium or, or on an underground or on a train, getting to those stadiums and, you know, learning about what it was like to sit in those stands like that stuff to me was was so interesting and I still love it more 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 and more you know like I still seek that stuff out when I'm traveling those kind of new experiences but I have gone to places um and and Juventus is an example of this where their new stadium feels very American to me it has a lot of the DNA of a European or Italian football stadium but there are these giant concourses where they have marketing experiences built in for fans, for kids. There's a Jeep parked on the concourse. And then when you sit down in your seat, they have this amazing kind of live match experience with lights, you know, incorporating the European sing song and having it what almost feels like an American NBA basketball arena experience with the lights and the music and the player announcements, yet still conforming to the traditions of football that we like with the walkouts and the, the player lineups. 
So I think that there's a little bit of both where, where, you know, in America, me personally, I learned a lot from the rest of the world. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, you need to understand the culture of football and then you build your own version of that. Like you saw something happen in Buenos Aires or you saw something happen when you were in, you know, Napoli or whatever. And those things become part of your DNA and then you use them to make something new for your own fandom. So I think, you know, now that I'm at a club here in Orlando, I see that. I see our fans kind of learning or understanding of global football culture and fan culture. And then they put their own spin on it. They're writing their own songs. They're making their own TIFOs that are, you know, kind of appropriate or part of the culture here in Florida or in Orlando. And I think that's how the, the those things kind of grow naturally. And, you know, from a co- commercial perspective, you know, not only are there tons of American investors, you know, entering the European game, but I think even some of those, you know, older European kind of giant brands are learning from commercial sports here in America for better or for worse. I'm seeing some of the things that I would see in an NFL stadium or uh, an NBA arena popping up in stadiums across Europe. And I think, you know, like the hospitality and the suites and the director's boxes, Tottenham Stadium is a an unbelievable example of like the commercial intersection of sports. Like that's not just a football stadium. That is like a money-making machine for that club. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, with, and and they know it, right? With the NFL matches. They just find the Formula have, One deal. Uh, they're going to have the four, they're going to have the car. Yeah. They're driving the, that that's unbelievable. Well, so, yeah. No, it's, it's been, you know, I think for a long time, the challenge for football clubs has been, you have this incredible piece of real estate in a prime location and you use it once every two weeks. You know, and I think American clubs have done a much better job traditionally than um, European clubs at, at making it a 24-7 or at least a you know, seven-day-a-week thing, be it a mall, be it a you know, retail center, be it um, you know, an experien- experiential venue or whatever it might be. And, and yeah, I do agree with you that I think uh, European clubs are, are kind of catching up Albeit, albeit slowly and maybe not all at the same pace. Mark, I'm going to let you go soon, but um, and you do still owe me your third kit, by the okay. way. But uh, but I want to ask you final question. Um, if you were working not at a club like you are now, but at a fashion brand, where would you be most interested to partner? Which it might be a club, or it might just be a country or a region that you think right now has an exciting edge that would appeal to fashion houses. So the scenario is I'm working at a fashion brand and I need to partner with someone in some geographic location. Correct. And you can, okay. you can invent the partnership that you want. You know, it can be something that includes on pitch like Juventus or it can be, um, you know, more of a sort of fashion or it can be a leisure wear partnership or whatever it yes. wants, but I, whatever you want. But I, I wonder, I mean, it feels to me like you talked about Juventus um, and the partnership they've done. Uh, I'm very aware of, uh, sort of Inter Milan and some of the stuff they've done. So I guess that's kind of where I'm going. And then you think, well, Italy is traditionally such a strong fashion area. Mm-hmm. So I, I was slightly wondering if Italy might be what you'd say, but um, I am interested to know what your response is. I think, I think I have two kind of initial thoughts. I really think Napoli is an exciting place. And I think uh, that like Marseille is a really exciting place. I think 
being around the Mediterranean, I think that there's this really interesting kind of melting pot where like either native Italians or, or native uh, French are mixing with, with Africans and uh, kind of continental Europeans and kind of, you know, Southern sensibilities in each of those countries that creates this like unique place for music, culture, fashion that kind of leans into a little bit of that. Like there are cities that are still just a little bit dangerous. Um, and so they have that edge to them. And I think going back to your question earlier about, about the nineties and like, you know, the, the terrace fashion, it, it had that little bit of like danger still kind of that keeps you really intrigued. And you're looking at those kind of, you know, musicians, or people from underprivileged communities that are, you know, drug dealers or, you know, kind of gang people that are the ones pushing style. They're making these choices not based on, you know, high label fashion, but on kind of function and availability. You know, in 90s hip hop, we saw the, you know, the rise of like the Timberland boot, the Carhartt jean and, um, you know, aviator jackets or like bomber jackets those things all readily available at like workwear stores. Like all those things have become fashion items. And I think like you see some of that with like some of the nineties, Nike trainers, warm up suits, um, different parts of like kind of street culture emerging in these, in these interesting locations where the dichotomy of the people going to the football matches are African Muslim, Moroccan, Catholic, Italian, French, Protestant, like all these weird things coming together that creates this super interesting uh, world where, where the music is also a melding of all those things. Like, so those two uh, areas I think are really, really interesting. I don't know what I would do in those areas. Well, that's okay. You got the clubs. I mean, two sleeping giant, you know, huge anti-establishment and proud clubs. That's what I think of Napoli and Marseille. You know, they don't want to be the, um, you know, like the elite from the north. They're, you know, proud of their roots and their culture and who they are. So, yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you, Mark. And I'm happy to let you off the uh, that third shirt unless you unless you have another one you can think of. You know what? Like, I don't know why, but the one that keeps coming back to mind is yet another Umbro shirt for some reason, even though I loved Adidas equipment in the 1993 era. For whatever reason, these three uh, keep going back to Umbro, and I'm not that much of an Umbro loyalist, but it's a Northern Ireland shirt from perhaps 92 or 93 that is just a geometric optical illusion of a kit. Um, and I happened to have the away, which was navy blue, Kelly green, and white. It's an unbelievable pattern. Uh, this also probably one of those shirts that's in the best of, worst of category. Certainly a polarizing design. That's I'll go terrific. with that one because it keeps coming to mind. That's a great shout. I was hoping when I asked you for your favorite kits that I'd get some you know, fairly niche um, ones and you definitely didn't disappoint with Bolivia under 16s or Northern <laughs> Ireland away in 1993. Man United was a bit mainstream, but um, it was you know, a we'll, uh, we'll let you off. 
Yeah, it was very mainstream. I could do the really hipster, deep dive, rare, weird things. But that one just kind of signified a point in my life and uh, it's a really special one to me. So I had to go with it. Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's been terrific talking to you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I'd love to to talk more about kits and football culture for, for the rest of the day if we could. But uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to chat with you and uh, I'm I'm honored to to be a guest. Thank you, Mark. If our listeners want to find out any more, if they want to hear more from you, where can they follow you? Uh, for, for right now, I'm uh, the creative director here at uh, Orlando City SC and the Orlando Pride. So most of the stuff that I'm doing on a daily basis, if you follow those channels, you'll see you'll see what I'm up to. Well, thank you very much, Mark. And thank you, listener. If you want more of this, make sure you are following this podcast in your preferred podcast platform and check out the show archives for more of the same. All the best. The Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football.